We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right. Uh, oh, yeah. Don't forget Valentine's Day tomorrow. I know, you know, you put Fat Tuesday in front of Valentine's Day. How are you supposed to remember? Like, seriously. Like, and, and then before that, it, it's like, what? So you're still recovering from Super Bowl. Come on. How's a guy supposed to get along here? All right, uh, let's talk about what's going on in the world. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, rattling that big saber again uh, in the March 1st deadline for Pharmacare. It's pretty funny because um, he said that uh, he doesn't need the money. He just needs the commitment. We'll figure out the money later. There you go. Uh, there's a difference between the left and the right right there. Uh, so, uh, but he said it's got to be, you know, it's got to be something going on by March 1st. We'll touch on that and play you some clips in just a sec. Also in the headlines, remember the thing about the expiring license plate uh, stickers because you didn't have to renew your plate anymore? Well, that whole thing's changing because they're going to automate it. So you don't have to do it anymore. It will do itself unless you have an offense uh, or something changes, then of course you got to do it uh, manually. But uh, they're getting they're going to automate the whole thing. So we'll see what happens uh, with that. Also, interesting statements from the housing minister saying interest rate cuts would ease housing supply constraint. What does that mean? That uh, that that basically means if we had lower lower interest rates, developers would build more homes. Why they say it in such a complicated manner when it comes to the truth? Uh, the other stuff, no problem. <laughs> but the truth, it's kind of in the back door, uh, through the screen door, as they say. So uh, that's fascinating. And anxiety levels are as higher, or if not higher, than they were. During the global pandemic, except now it's about affordability issues, not a global pandemic. Fascinating. All right. So as I started off, uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, rattling uh, Justin Trudeau's cage again in regard to uh, health care. Many say this is just politics, so he doesn't uh, loop himself too close to a government, which is declining in the polls pretty much on a weekly basis. And that runway for the next election getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Here's what uh, Jagmeet had to say in regard to um, what if the agreement breaks? What happens? But what happens if they break the agreement? Then there is no agreement in place. Then we are not we are not entitled. We are not in any way required to continue to provide any support if they break their side of the agreement. So instead of just again coming out and answering the damn question, so we all understand, does that trigger an election? And basically, what I just interpreted out of that was no. But the next thing that comes up that we don't vote on, that might. So if that's not Pharmacare, what the heck would that be? Because that's a major plank in the NDP's world. So um, anyway, uh, what does all of what we just heard mean? If uh, the liberals break their promise and the, the agreement is broken, they've broken the agreement, then there's no requirement for us to continue to follow any of the elements of the agreement. That means if they need passage of a bill, doesn't happen. They need something to be speeded up in Parliament. It's not going to be sped up. Those things don't happen anymore. Those are severe consequences, and we're no longer in an agreement. So we can pull the plug at any time, but not now. 
So that's what that means. Boy, it was not complicated to get there. Don't you wish they could just come out and spell it out for you like I do? You know how when they have uh, sign language and, and such, we need something like that just to decode the garbly goop that all politicians say when they talk to us. Here's what that really means. Get that maybe in a closed caption. That'd be nice. I get the closed caption for the hearing impaired because I'm a little deep, you know. So maybe if we could have, here's what the politician, decoding politicians. Honestly, it's as valuable as as Braille, is it not? Come on. So uh, anyway, um, from what I understand, and believe me, we'll line up the experts this afternoon and trying to figure out what the hell it does mean. But from what I understand, that means, okay, because we haven't done anything about pharmacare, or the government hasn't, uh, we're pulling away, uh, you know, the net under the trapeze. So now it's every jump has to make it. If it doesn't, then down it goes. But if pharmacare is not a big enough one, what is? So I, 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 I don't know what that means. It's just more political garbly goop. And, you know, we're like them because we're propping them up, but we're really not like them, which really begs you the question, if you don't like Trudeau, who are you going to vote for or are you just going to stay home? People are worried about low voter turnout. Well, that's just the other people staying home. (laughs) I don't like my guy, so I'm staying home. So, you know, but if we've seen this much socialism, this much extreme left, because he's taken the once great center left party to the extreme left, then why would you want the NDP? Do you want more of this? You know, I, I, I like to see the liberals go back towards the center and the conservatives for that matter. So it's going to be fascinating to see how this all pans out. But, man, I don't know. When you're standing up at the end and it's the Academy Awards, I'm not sure if we should be giving it to Justin Trudeau, who's won it for years. I think it's time to pass it along to Jugmeet Singh. I think he's a winner of the award. I think he's doing the most acting right now. Lots of chatter prior to the Super Bowl. Taylor Swift everywhere and AI uh, uh, images of her in uh, sexual situations and such. And, you know, that's Taylor Swift, who has all the money in the world. What happens if you're just some lonely victim who who, who gets caught in this web? There's little little recourse for Canadians who are victimized by explicit images. And to talk more about all of this, David Shipley is with us, cybersecurity expert, CEO of Boser on Security, and here now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks for the opportunity. So, you know, David, I was talking earlier on about, you know, some earlier cyber crime issues and, and sexual assaults and, and victimization as such. It, it seems like that's decades ago now with the technology that's now falling in front of us. Yeah, I mean, when I was in Ottawa uh, a week ago and and testifying about the need for better cybersecurity laws just to keep the lights on in this country, you know, I was told Parliament moves at the speed of Parliament, and the speed of Parliament is not the speed of technology. And and while we wait for government to act, thousands of women are being victimized daily by um, AI deepfake technology that's either used by people they may not even know um, to create uh, fake intimate images, but also increasingly for things like sextortion to actually threaten to release these images to harm uh, folks' reputation, relationships, et cetera, in order to uh, make money. 
We, it seems, David, we couldn't keep up with this a decade ago when it was a lot more primitive than what it is now. It's certainly become maybe even more sophisticated. What are your thoughts now? I mean, can, can, what can we do here? How do we get ahead of AI? Well, a couple of different things. We can't put artificial intelligence, um, AI-generated images, uh, technology back in, in the bottle. We're too late for that. Uh, But what we can do is, number one, we can hold social media companies and internet platforms that facilitate the distribution of these images and can sometimes take hours to remove them, even when they victimize some of the most wealthy celebrities on the planet. So God help the average person. Um, We can hold them accountable publicly because that's what they are. They are not, as they would claim to be the internet service providers moving the bits and, and bytes down the pipe and not responsible for it because they make ads from people suffering. So number one, we have to hold these platforms accountable, just like regular media was always accountable for the content that it aired. Number two, we need to make it a criminal offense mm-hmm. to uh, access or create intimate images of individuals without their consent. Um, and we need to use the denunciation principles of this, the justice system so that we need to make some examples of people. The third thing we can do, and, and the reason I, I am so hard on, on, on men in this topic is, is primarily crimes committed by, by men targeting uh, primarily women. We need a massive conversation with our boys, our young men, and our adult men about how wrong this all is. Because as much as we wanna fight this legally or technologically and have accountability, at the end of the day, someone thinks this is okay to do and it's not. We've seen uh, very recently, you know, Mark Zuckerberg dragged before a, a committee, a court, a Congress, whatever. And it's certainly not the first time and where he turns around and he apologizes to victims, what have you. I mean, are we getting any closer to this, David? Or have we already no, been there? Not, not until it costs uh, shareholders at Facebook real money, not until Mark Zuckerberg doesn't make $28 billion uh, a couple of days after their uh, quarterly results are released because the share price skyrocketed. There has to be a, uh, a cost to the businesses that profit from this, the victimizations of, of people's most intimate selves. What can we do to protect ourselves? What can we do if something like this happens? Because I don't even think people know how to get off social media. Is there a way to shut it all down? Well, I mean, you can certainly pull the plug and exit yourself. But if if someone has created uh, images about you, um, the thing about abandoning the space is that might add even more fuel to the fire to, in terms of its potential legitimacy. So, um, you know, we're, we're left with little recourse and, and it should be simple for someone to flag to any website or any online service hosting these images, um, and they should be forced to act immediately when they're intimate images, even if, um, you know, under, under any circumstances, just get them down. Someone uh, raises that this is them and they, it's up there without their consent. Mm-hmm. It needs to be gone in minutes, and then companies need to be accountable to easily provide police with the digital trail of who did it. Why, you know, you bring up a very valid point, David. It's so easy to post things on the sites that will go worldwide, literally in seconds. Why can't we have the ability to pull stuff down just the same way? Well, because the companies profit from it. Um, You can't think for a second that that did not spike traffic to Twitter when uh, everyone started talking about it. And, And because they are literally shielded in U.S. law from any accountability for the content on their site. 
So, so the way this used to be differently is if back in the olden days when we used to have printed newspapers, if you printed something heinous or hurtful or harmful to an individual, that was called defamation or in print yeah. libel. And you could get sued for it. And, and that would hurt. Um, see the, uh, the, the cases that uh, the British royal family has brought against media over the right. years for the invasion of privacy. But these companies are legally protected from any accountability and that shield needs to come down because they're hiding behind it and people are being harmed. David Shipley with us, cybersecurity expert and CEO of Boceron Security. Little recourse for Canadians victimized by explicit images generated uh, generated using artificial intelligence. David, fascinating issue. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. Thanks for this important time. This is interesting uh, because we have talked about, uh, well, is uh, Donald Trump, it, it looks like he's going to make a run for the White House again. And and the prime minister has been very quick to label Pierre Polyev as a Donald Trump, which, boy, that's that's hitting low. <laughs> anyway, um and and at the end of the day, uh, you know, whenever uh, Justin paints that picture, it makes America look bad. And, of course, someone like a Donald Trump kind of, you know, takes that to heart, does he? I don't know. And, and by the way, do allies get together before elections and talk about what happens afterwards? Well, apparently Canadian diplomats have been speaking with advisors and congr- uh, congressional allies of former U.S. President Donald Trump to lay the groundwork for a strong relationship if Donald Trump returns to the White House next year, so says Canada's ambassador to the U.S. To talk more, Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, and the Mock School, University of Toronto, and here now. Jack, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. So far, so good. Um, is it common for before elections, advisors, congressional uh, congressional allies to get together and talk about what's going to happen six months from now or a year from now on, on whoever wins? Uh, some of that does take place, but uh, not, a, not a lot of it. And it's rarely as highly publicized as this, which makes me think that the, uh, the Trudeau government is, uh, is not so much concerned about actually... Uh, doing something to prepare for a Trump restoration as being seen to be doing something. So and that's is a little the, problematic. So uh, when, is the, uh, when Trump was in the White House, the uh, this government, of which I've been very critical on various occasions, including on your show, was actually pretty effective in in dealing with them and uh, and uh, and making uh, workable uh, arrangements. But um that not all of that was done in public, and I'm a little worried about uh, both the very public nature of this and the fact that it coincides with uh, Justin Trudeau attacking his principal Canadian rival as a Trump clone. Uh, now, I know that the American media and American politicians don't pay a tremendous amount of attention, usually, to Canadian politics. But uh, if this gets uh, reported on enough, and sooner or later it probably will, uh, it's not likely to go down well with Mr. Trump, who is at the best of times a volatile and uh, and erratic character. So is this really about how to better prepare Canada for a Trump presidency or how to best use a Trump pres- presidency in the fight against Pierre Polyev? At the moment, I think it's at least as much the second. And and as I said, uh, that's uh, that's a little tricky. A former Canadian ambassador to the U.S., David McDonald, warned against the perils of this 
First of all, it simply isn't working particularly well, given how far ahead uh, Polyevra is in the polls. And second, uh, it's not going to help uh, smooth relations with Trump should he get back in. Do you think this will be a strategy the prime minister will use right up until an election, or is it just wading into the waters now? I think it is a strategy he will use. Uh, Trump is pretty unpopular in Canada. And any connection with Trump, if it can be made to seem plausible, uh, has has the potential to play well with a lot of Canadians. I don't think it'll help Justin Trudeau a lot because I suspect he's basically a political toast already. So much of the electorate has made up its mind about him. They'll vote for any remotely plausible alternative. So, uh, so this has the capacity to be ineffective and counterproductive. Uh, what are the chances of this having to be a concern? What do you think Donald, Ch- uh, Donald Trump's chances are of getting into the White House? Well, before he was first elected in, in 2016, I was talking with colleagues who were looking at the polls and were pretty confident he would not get in, but he did. There is, I think, in some circumstances, a hidden Trump vote. People who support the guy but are reluctant to admit it to pollsters. And there is the fact that he does have a very devoted following. He's running against an incumbent who is uh, pretty unpopular himself. And the age issue uh, about which we've heard a lot in recent days is not helping Biden. Uh, if that becomes a major factor in the election, it uh, it could mean that he's political toast. So, uh, so this is a possibility that's serious enough we do have to make... Uh, realistic plans for it. I've, I've seen polls giving Trump a, uh, a six-point lead over Biden. So this is cause for concern. Uh, the, the one thing great about him not being president was we didn't have to hear the comments all of the time. And now all of a sudden, boom, this week we're hearing comments from him as if he was already the president, including the comments on NATO. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you if, if you didn't support NATO, then we don't care what happens to you. Basically, I'm paraphrasing, of course. What are your thoughts and the impact of those comments? I think they resonated uh, with that quite frightening effect in most allied capitals. It's easy to write this off as as a spontaneous outburst, but sometimes spontaneous outbursts are revealing of a person's innermost thoughts. And deep down, Trump views America's NATO allies as freeloaders, as parasites. He doesn't have any sense of obligation to them. Uh, He views international relations through a very narrow transactional lens where your gain is my loss. And uh, he does have a certain affinity for his uh, his best bro, Vladimir Putin, Uh, which means that if Trump did get uh, in again, I think uh, NATO, whether the United States withdrew or not, would be essentially dead and Putin would have a free hand in Europe. I still have a hard time believing that he's swaying all of those voters to jump on board his Russian bandwagon. I mean, whether it's the military, MAGA, whatever. I mean, this was enemy number one at one point. Are people jumping on this bandwagon? Uh, they are. They a, a, a lot of them are. Uh, a former Canadian prime minister and former ambassador in the U.S., Lester Pearson, once observed that the Americans are instinctive isolationists. If you look at American history over the long over the long run, the period of active American engagement from 1940 on is actually the exception, not the rule. 
And I think victory in the Cold War sort of enabled a lot of Americans to think, now that's over, we can turn inward again and worry about ourselves. And Trump has appealed to that sentiment uh, quite effectively. Does it matter who the prime minister of Canada is, whether it's JT or PP, which one uh, handles Trump or will he handle both the same? Well, personal chemistry does seem to matter a lot with Trump. And the fact that he had a pretty testy relationship with Justin Trudeau means that uh, that uh, if if the two are having to deal with each other again, it's not going to go terribly smoothly. I don't know if uh, how well he would get on with uh, Polyevra. Uh, the, there are enough underlying resentments towards Canada on Trump's part that it might not make a huge amount of difference. But the, mm-hmm. the personal factor is always important. Uh, when, when Trump was in office, Canada's approach to dealing with him was largely to work around him, to deal with uh, Congress, with governors, with politicians from not only the border states, but other states that did a lot of trade with Canada uh, people who understood that our economic interdependence meant that it was uh, it was foolish to uh, to slap big tariffs on us and so on, and to some extent that approach is probably going to be tried again uh, should he return to the White House. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, PhD program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, University of Toronto. Jack is always fascinating topic. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Canadians are stressed out about the economy and have little faith in it or politicians or governments to fix the problem, according to a 2024 Can Trust Index published by Proof Strategies. To talk more about all of this, Bruce McClellan with us, Chair of Proof Strategies, and here now. Bruce, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thank you. It's nice to be here on World Radio Day. Yeah, as well, there's so many things going on. Fat Tuesday as well. How do we keep up? <laughs> So uh, do you get the do you get the I know do you get the feeling, Bruce, that uh, Canadians are as stressed now as they were uh, during the height of the global pandemic, but perhaps for different reasons? Well, yes, and we were very surprised when we did this research. Uh, we were the survey was done just a few weeks ago in early January, and we had asked during the pandemic at you know when that Omicron virus was coming in and people mm. really discouraged how stressed and anxious they were. And we had about 46% of Canadians at that time saying they were. Now, this January, we asked about how do you feel on stress and anxiety around the economy? And it's 67%. So almost you know, 50% more people are saying stressed, mm. they're saying they're stressed out now than they were during the pandemic. We thought the pandemic was the high watermark of stress. Turns out now it's higher with the economy. And I would just add, three quarters of women are saying that they're feeling stressed out and anxious about the economy. So this is a real national issue that leaders need to pay attention to, show some empathy and take some action. How bizarre is this, Bruce, when you think about it during the pandemic, it was, boy, when we get out the other side, it's going to be like the roaring 20s all over again. And it was for about six months. And then, boy, affordability issues, it went south pretty quick. Well, and you're absolutely right, it did. And, And speaking of affordability, in our can trust index this year, we asked people about their trust in each level of government to address affordable housing. And the results are dismal. Fewer than a quarter of Canadians trust any of the three levels of government to deliver affordable housing. And then when we ask about the private real estate developers, they're also at only a quarter percent of trust. So we've got a really serious problem. 
And the people who have to get together to make it fix it aren't trusted. Uh, you touched on this earlier, Bruce, uh, the gender numbers and, and how they compare. Yes. So what we're seeing is uh, an interesting and concerning uh, gender gap between women and men on trust. And, uh, you know, I mentioned how we're seeing women are much more stressed out about the economy. Um, but that is translating into trust. When people don't feel secure, when they feel threatened, when they feel vulnerable, it's naturally going to erode their trust. So what we have found is that on issues like trust in the electoral system or other aspects of trust, we're seeing that women are reporting lower levels of trust. Um, fewer trust the electoral system compared to men. Fewer trust artificial intelligence to improve the consumer experience compared to men. There's definitely an issue with, with a gender gap in trust in Canada. And it, it also applies to another area of concern that we found, which is trust in the Canadian healthcare system. Mm. Through the pandemic, there was high trust in our system. People felt it was there for them when they needed it, it was working. But now we're starting to see a drop off. And I think it's got to be related to, you know, delays in emergency rooms, not being able to find a family physician, delays in surgeries. Uh, so we're seeing overall in Canadians the decline in trust in the healthcare system. And it's a bigger decline with women. You know, it's fascinating because we talk about different uh, categories, whatever, and, and, and what stands out for Canadians. But boy, we're certainly hearing from you, Bruce, trust, 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 right across the board. And Canadians are losing that. We so we need unification here. We need unification uh, through leadership that brings us together and not divides us. Well, trust can be built by by a few things, certainly by how the quality of what you do, the your ability to deliver the product you say you're going to deliver. By empathy, understanding, uh, you know, connecting with people, taking an interest in them and trying to understand their needs and responding. And then integrity. Do what you say you're going to do. Live up to your mm. word. Just prom make a promise and then deliver. There's mm. lots of ways you can build trust. And, and we see cases even now with this economic anxiety uh, around us. We see some organizations that are growing trust. The RCMP, the Canadian military, their trust has increased in our research this year. So... It can be done with good behavior. Bruce McClellan with us, Chair of Proof Strategies and uh, Canadians stressed out about the economy, politicians, and trust right the way across the board. Bruce, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Pleasure to chat. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. To talk about the big game. And by the way, the ratings are in. And they're the biggest that they've had. Not only did it go up, but I believe they're the biggest. What does that say? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, you know, I love when I get these calls from producer Will, and he says, do you want to talk about Taylor Swift? And I'm like, gladly, because I'm so much of that. You and you and I actually might agree, Scott. Uh, yeah, well, it's not it's no Harry and Meghan. I know that for you. But, uh, you know, maybe <laughs> but, but it has to do. Are you surprised that because there was a lot of people, you know, obviously there's the purists that don't want, you know, I think of the guy in the stands holding the old guy hanging up, handing or holding up the sign that said, I'm not a Swifty. It's kind of obvious. Um, but it seems to be the purists and then the fans. But you can't argue it's generating a lot of interest. 
I think no matter what the naysayers are trying to say, and they are getting some airtime, there is no doubt that Taylor Swift had a seismic effect on this year's Super Bowl. So when they're equating the numbers with what, the number of people who watched the original moon landing or something to that effect, <laughs> you know, and then they start quantifying it into the millions and billions of dollars. When you talk about this year's halftime show, if they don't ask Taylor Swift to do the halftime show next year, then the NFL is absolutely bonkers. Because if you think that it broke records now, and if you believe that the Kansas City Chiefs are truly a football team that has the dynasty behind them, they're already talking about three-peat, then that would actually be when all the stars are lined. It'd be hitting for the cycle. It would be the trifecta. It would be like one of those lifetime, once in a lifetime occurrences, you know, that only happens once in a lifetime. And, you know, you take Taylor Swift out of that game. And I'm telling you, after the first five minutes, it's a sleeper. The whole thing was the only thing that kept me awake was the every every so often there was a Taylor Swift sighting up in the box. And that that kind of, you know, uh, reawakened me, so to speak, until, of course, the overtime ending. And then that's completely different. So what does sport learn from this? What does the NFL, the NHL, baseball, whatever, what, what's the takeaway here? The takeaway is, is that it's no longer just the game. So when you look at the different audiences, Scott, you've got the purists, the absolute football fans who could care less about Taylor Swift. And yeah. for them, it's just about the game. But, you know, they haven't evolved. They'll, they'll show up every Sunday. They'll get in their armchair with their Cheetos or Doritos and sit there and watch all the games from, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon till till t- 10 o'clock at night. And then there are new fans. So if you look at a younger demographic, Scott, these are this is the generation that has to be doing multiple things at once while mm. watching a game. So they'll be on their phones. They'll be checking Twitter at the time. They'll be looking at other platforms to see if there's any sightings, perhaps, of Taylor Swift. So the NFL has to learn that there are multiple things that have to go on in a game all those different layers that will actually now make the Super Bowl the Super Bowl. So, yes, it's always about the game and it's always about the the, the, the players, but really it's the entertainment factor. It's that organic it factor that all has to now compute into this equation. And you bring up a valid point, uh, Alyssa, making the Super Bowl super. And, you know, it's not like they haven't done that in the past. That's how the halftime show got to be what it is. At one time, it's marching bands. Now it's like, who's the big entertainer? The same thing with the commercials. That all adds to the entertainment. This is just the next level. No? And this and yes, and this is harder to obtain because you think about it. You know, I read the New York Times rundown on the commercials and some people thought the commercials were great and some people did not. But that's no longer new, Scott. Yeah, we all know that they're expensive and we all know that people are going to be pulling out all the plugs to get their, you know, 60 seconds of fame. The Mm -hmm. halftime show, you know, they have to keep getting a list entertainers and making sure that it is an A plus 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 show. But again, those two entities have both plateaued. So therefore, what's the new thing? What is the new sparkle that they're going to have to put on to the Super Bowl? Now, Taylor Swift is not always going to be there. There's not always going to be a Taylor Swift effect. But what the NFL needs to start doing and needs to start working with marketing partners and advertising partners and says, okay, we have great halftime shows. We have great ads. What else is there? Because we've got a new demographic. We have to entertain them. And what does that look like?
And the uh, and the end result of all of this is, Alyssa, they've they've got to broaden the audience. Then that's what this has done. You know, when you hear that there has been mom and pop stores, T-shirt stores all over North America suddenly printing shirts that says Taylor Swift's boyfriend is playing in the in the <laughs> Super Bowl, yeah. and they're selling like crazy. And I went through my Instagram feed, and you know, you know, women and friends of mine in my demographic are all like wearing pink, hmm. wearing these T-shirts, and I'm thinking. Whoa, this is this is you know, this just didn't yeah. happen. So again, you know, you cannot deny the effect that she had on it. And I don't know why people got all bent out of shape. I watched the entire game, Scott, and I mean it was a, a real defensive battle. And if you were into yep. that, you were into yep. that. And if you weren't, you were looking for Taylor Swift cut-ins. And I thought that the broadcast was very judicious in not showing too much Taylor Swift, that they kept um, you know, the the Swifties on the edge of their seats when the next cut-in would be. And of course they got what they wanted when, you know, her boyfriend won, et cetera, et cetera. But I thought that it was a very, very balanced uh, broadcast from that perspective. That's a very good point. I would agree with that. And, uh, you know, I was going to ask you about uniting us and, and the, we are the worlds and is this the sort of stuff we need, but we'll save it for next one. Uh, Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Always fun, Alyssa. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, it's bizarre because during the uh, global pandemic, we said uh, we saw the weak links in our healthcare system. We were going to fix them. Meetings between premiers and prime ministers. And it looked as if things were seriously moving forward. And then, of course, uh, overpopulation, housing crisis, uh, translating into a healthcare crisis, more people sitting in the emergency room that don't have a doctor. And we are where we are. All of a sudden, uh, the prime minister and the premier are meeting again and more money is being put forth. What is going on? And are we fixing this or are we just burning more money in the same old system? Dr. Sean Watley with us, practicing physician, author of When Politics Be- uh, Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute and his latest in the post, Ontario's health care agreement with Ottawa will not fix broken system. The federal provincial agreement represents more central planning designed to fix problems created by central planning uh dr sean watley here now sean thanks for the time hope you're doing well i am thank you you bring up an interesting point here sean we seem to be chasing our tail here we said we were uh the the status quo was not going to work anymore during the global pandemic i thought we all kind of agreed on that and now it appears we're just adding more money to the same thing what happened with the premier and and the prime minister the other day I think they're in a tough spot, right? We ask governments to do what I don't think any government anywhere in the world has been able to do. So every other system around the world partners with uh, private industry, uh, individual clinics. Uh, they No one tries to do it the way we do it, where we all turn to government when there's ever a problem for anything. And so we've asked them to do an impossible task. And and then when we say, well, look, you guys need to get along and 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 give money like you promised and work out a deal, that presents an, a political problem for them. And so uh, kudos to them. They got a deal and money is changing hands and, and they've resolved that political issue. But there's still that elephant in the room. No one in the world can do this. And yet we keep asking governments to do what no one has been able to do. Yet supporters will say, yes, there's lots of socialist governments over the world that are doing this. 
<laughs> yeah, well, there used to be used to be us, Cuba, and North Korea, but now it's only us. And and to be clear, um, you know, we can be very strong on universal care. There's no reason why everyone just like we have universal car insurance, right? You mm-hmm. can't drive on the road unless you have insurance. There's no reason why we can't be very strong on on. There's a strong case in support of medical insurance for people. The issue is not insurance. It's not universality. The issue is taking it a step further and saying that someone is smart enough and has enough data to be able to make a decision at Queens Park or in Ottawa for you or your loved one at the bedside. And that just doesn't happen. Are you concerned, and I don't want to get off track here, but you, you, you know, obviously we said status quo wasn't working during the pandemic. This is the template from the, for, the, for, for the healthcare plan, and it's basically just shoveling more money into it, and that's continually been the issue. Are, we, are, are you concerned we're heading down that same path with that same template, that same culture, that same thinking with pharmacare? or dental care. I mean, you know, we haven't got this fixed and we're jumping on that. It seems, is that, is that, is that a concern? Is that accurate? Uh, It's definitely a concern. And the fascinating thing, at least to me about it, is that it's not just a concern for people like you and me. Actually, the people on the political left are saying, hey, wait a second, whatever we do, we don't want PharmaCare built the same way as Medicare. So they talk about value-based insurance design for drugs. And they say, you know what, if a drug doesn't really do all that much good, we're not going to fund it all that much. And so in other words, they have a, a grade of of amount of reimbursement that you can get for a particular medication. Things that are life-saving, we're going to pay 100%. Things that we're not quite sure, we're going to pay less. You don't have that discussion on the Medicare side of things. Basically, things are 100% funded or they're not funded at all. Um, So where are we now in this challenge that we said we were going to fix during the pandemic? And is what happened between the Prime Minister and the Premier a step closer to that? Um, I don't think it is a step closer. I think it's better for them. They solve a political problem. But at the at the center of this is a constitutional issue. And it's been there since the late 1960s. If the federal government has the power to use its spending power uh, and to entice the provinces to do things that the provinces wouldn't otherwise do or to stop the provinces from doing things, from being creative and trying a little new uh, a little creativity here and there, then we are in a stalemate. And so, you know, the uh, Quebec premier said just uh, last year or the year before, he said, you know, we will not be dictated to on health care. And so whenever the provinces tried to do something, the feds come out and say, hey, your health care transfer payments are at risk. You better stop doing that. No, no uh, experimentation. So until we can deal with that constitutional issue, we won't get anywhere. So what are you looking for? And I, I've, I've put you on this before, Sean. Um, what is that creativity? Is that creativity, and I'm going to say the bad word again, does that creativity mean bringing in the private sector? Because, you know, that's when the red flag goes up. Yeah. So now you're talking about how we actually get done what we want to get done. I would start even a step back. What goals do we want? Number one, Mm. we need growth. People need more care. So 2.3 million patients without a family doctor in Ontario, we need more. So I think we need to start with an agreement. Can we grow? Do we need growth? 
Are, are we going to do that? And, and if we agree on that, okay, now how are we going to do that? I think there's a great opportunity. We live in a, in a federation, which means we have provinces that can each do their own thing. Why don't we have some friendly competition between provinces? Let's see how Manitoba does it versus Ontario. Hey, Manitoba is doing it better than Ontario. What can we learn from them? In order to have that flexibility and ability to experiment, the federal government needs to back off a little bit and say, listen, okay, we want you guys to try something a little bit creative. Now, that will mean creativity on the public-private partnerships and all the things that get the unions all upset. But we have to start at least by saying we need more. Patients need more, and governments can't simply provide everything that they've promised to provide. It seems that the same issues, challenges we're having with health care, we're having the same kind of discussion with housing. We can't seem to get it done. Can we learn one yeah. something from the other? I think we can. And and the issue, I mean, I, I don't I don't want to make myself, yeah, I'm not an expert on housing. Having said that, we would have a housing boom if people were allowed to build houses. So a lot of this, there's so many roadblocks to, mm -hmm. to development, to the people who want to build, to the people maybe even who want to build their own homes. So there's multiple mm. levels that are blocking innovation. It's almost exactly the same thing in healthcare. It's not just about whether you pay with your visa card or pay with your OHIP card. It's the fact that you have people deciding what services are offered, how many of those services are offered, what those services look like, who gets to manage those services. So it's that whole discussion. And we have to get out of that red tape environment if we're going to actually find creative solutions for patients. You know, we always said status quo isn't working during the pandemic, yet here we are uh, trying to make the status quo work again. Dr. Sean Watley with us, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute. As always, Sean, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Future provincial governments will need to hold a referendum before introducing a carbon tax, said Ontario Premier Doug Ford today. If passed, the new legislation would give voters a direct say over any new provincial carbon tax, uh, cap-and-trade system, or other carbon uh, pricing program. Uh, the new law will guarantee that no provincial government can force a costly carbon tax on the people of Ontario without ensuring their voices are heard loud and clear, for set, uh, Ford said at a news conference. But then uh, if another government gets in and they have a majority, can't they just change all of this? Uh, let's bring in Wayne Petrosi, Professor Emeritus Pol uh, Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University and here now. Wayne, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you. Uh, your thoughts on this announcement? Surprised to hear it at this point, considering we're so far out. Not really. This is an attempt, and it's a really not a, a very good one, to change the channel. I mean, you remember yesterday, the Ontario government, Ford, uh, lost a, yet another court case around his attempt to suppress wages of the entire public sector, called Bill 124. And more generally, this is just draw our attention away from the fact that this Ford government has made more U-turns than a clown car at a circus. <laughs> uh, some may like those U-turns if they're heading down the wrong road, which sometimes is beneficial. You know, we've seen when the federal government doesn't do that. Uh, are, are these t are these kitchen table issues that, that really concern Ontarians? You know, this, this business about binding parliament, a future parliament, is really dicey legally. 
this is a posturing. This is being on the side of the angels, so to speak. I don't like taxes, and I'm going to pass a law that says future provinces can't impose carbon levies, or future provincial governments, sorry, can't impose carbon levies unless and until they hold a referendum. I'm on the side of the people. I mean, it, it, it sounds nice. It's devoid of reality and, and the basic facts of a parliamentary system. Uh, how is it void of reality? Well, as I said, uh, you know, the, the, con- the fundamental concept in, uh, in the parliamentary system is parliament is supreme. And that means the parliament that's in, 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 in session at, in the moment, in the present. So you can't have a parliament in 2025 pass a law that prevents a parliament in 2035 from doing something different. So, again, yeah, so uh, basically you can't create rules uh, that another government who has a majority can't come in and and change back to the way they were. Is that is that basically what you're saying, Wayne? Yeah, that's what the idea of parliamentary supremacy means. You're, you're supreme in the moment when you you're like you said, you have a majority. You get to do what you think people want you to do that you got elected for. And we could say that for pretty much anything or any level of government, right? I mean, if you don't, uh, you know, there, there is, there is, there is no setting things in stone until, of course, the next election. The only limitation, of course, is with respect to certain fundamental uh, civil liberties, right? That's why we have a charter, right? But, but outside of that, parliamentary supremacy is a pretty simple, uh, and it's one of its more appealing features of the parliamentary system of government. Uh, does this, you know, and, and, and I think most Canadians would understand that, that uh, everything counts until there's another government in and an election uh, and, and the results change things. Uh, does this sort of chatter resonate with Ontarians? I don't think so. Uh, I, I, I don't. I think most people, it's going to be, they're going to notice it less than a, than a passing snow shower in, 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 in February. Um, it, no. Really? You don't think so? Because there's been, I'm surprised to hear you say that because there's been many polls done that said the Canadians aren't really happy with the carbon tax at this point. So I'm not sure why it wouldn't resonate. Well, the reason, I mean, you know, the polls are partly capturing what's happening otherwise in the political environment. So that amongst those who, who do, you know, who are chattering and the, the federal conservatives have made a, made a concerted effort to communicate their their unease and concerns and opposition to the current federal carbon levies. And I think that's what you're, you're kind of picking up. So people are aware of it through that. Now, are they aware in the sense that they understand what Ontario might want to do and whether it's a good or bad thing? I highly doubt it. I don't think anybody understands it, Wayne. I don't think anybody understands any part of the carbon tax. But I think the issue is uh, Canadians don't want to pay more tax. So I'm not sure how it wouldn't resonate when you say we're not going to do this, whether it's uh, strong policy or, or not. I, I think it's going to resonate, no? Well, except that what all, he's not saying I'm going to get rid of carbon taxes. He's saying I'm going to pass a referendum that stops that I'm going to pass a bill that requires a referendum before mm-hmm. any future government can levy a carbon tax. So, yeah, you know, it, I, I agree. Know, if, it, if it sounds like I'm splitting hairs, there's a difference between I'm going to do this versus I'm going to set something up so if somebody else tries to do this, this is what they'll have to do. That's a form of convoluted logic 
that is not going to do well in, in any polling environment. Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus, Politics and Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University. Wayne, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, uh, you may have heard. And, you know, most uh, I'm not really listening to what Donald Trump's saying recently or for the last several years because he's not president anymore. And it was like we heard like three or four things a day. I've had it. And, and now all of a sudden something has stood out again, and he's not even president, but just some of the comments that he's making in regard to NATO. And uh, obviously he has a, a, a mat on for those that aren't contributing their fair share to NATO. That includes Canada or countries like that. And basically said, uh, if you're not paying your fair share, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, he doesn't care what Russia does or or would have you. It's a free-for-all. And you can interpret that any way you wish. Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the uh, Macdonald-Laurier Institute and author of the new book, Security, Cooperation, Governance, the Canada-U.S. States, uh, United States Open Border Paradox, and it is available. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. You bet. Good afternoon, Scott. So he's not even president yet. I don't know whether he will or make it there. Who knows where that journey is going? Uh, are you surprised at this comment coming from him and world reaction? Yeah, it's interesting, right? So we've never had this situation before of a previous president campaigning to be president again. Uh, and the influence that he wields both as a former president and as a presidential candidate. Now, what we're hearing here is really not all that different from the way that Trump has uh, always uh, related to NATO, which is on a very transactional basis. This is sort of how he does all his dealings. um, And that's why he prefers these sort of bilateral transactional pieces where uh, he and the United States can throw their weight around and basically make other people sort of do things. Um, but uh, I actually think that there's perhaps a bit more strategy to this than people give it uh, give it credit. Look, from a U.S. perspective, from a Trump perspective, without sounding like an apologist here for Trump, uh, they're looking at Europe and going, look, we're not asking the Europeans to pony up in North America to defend the continent. So why is it that the United States is having to pony up to defend Europe but the United States' strategic interests are elsewhere in the world, that is to say the Indo-Pacific. And so all the resources that the United States devotes to, to Europe are resources that in the end are not there to assert American interests in the Indo-Pacific, where, of course, neither Canada nor the Europeans are at least currently making any sort of significant contribution, at least not militarily. And so I think what he's signaling to Europe is, look, I've got bigger fish to fry, I'll be there to support you, but if you want my support, you're going to need to step up. You're going to need to defend your own neighborhood, and you're going to need to get your act together because if I'm going to be elected president and you want to call the White House, you better pony up now because once I get elected, it's going to be too late. Uh, so, um, in, in a sense, he's right. He, it's just it's com- coming from Donald Trump, and people aren't uh, necessarily happy with that. Uh, what is the world reaction to this? So I think to understand the world reaction, you have to understand that, as you point out, the 
look, the conversations about burden sharing and the crisis over burden sharing goes back to 1951, December 1951, John Foster Dulles. So these are new conversations. Yeah. And what we're seeing at play here is U.S. unilateralism. It's just that with Biden, you get unilateralism with a smile. With Trump, you get unilateralism with a frown. But it's always about U.S. unilateralism, and it's always about, ultimately, about U.S. interests. And what Trump understands is that NATO is a very efficient way to hurt European interests, because rather than having to deal with each country individually, here he has 30 countries at the table who he can really scare uh, the bejesus out of. Uh, by uh, um, by making these types of statements. And so it's a very efficient way for Trump to try to corral the Europeans to get their act together. But from a U.S. perspective, he also doesn't want the uh, Europeans to get too independent, too autonomous, and too autarkic, because that would, of course, mean that the Europeans might coordinate the defense industry, then they might buy fewer U.S. defense products or so. Mm. So yes, he wants the Europeans to spend. Yes, he wants them to coordinate. But he also wants to continue to make sure that they're closely tied to the United States, precisely so that Trump can exert the sort of pressure and the sort of uh, uh, short leash that he's trying to exert now. How does Biden uh, accommodate this? How does Biden react to this? So I think Biden is in a very tough spot. He's in a tough spot domestically because, of course, he's sandwiched um, between the people who want him to leave the world to its own devices. We see a U.S. Congress, especially on the Republican side, that looks very much like the 1920s. These are the world's problems are not our our problems and other people can can look after them, but it's not our job to look after the world's. Um, and you also then see him sort of being pushed by the people, in particular by key U.S. allies, of course, making sure the United States stays on side. And of course, on the foreign policy side, he's also squeezed because on the one hand, he's being asked to do a lot more uh, in a very dangerous and unstable world. And at the same time, he has a U.S. Congress that's clearly asking him to do a lot less. Uh, so, uh, But I think Biden so far has been very adept at uh, negotiating sort of the U.S. foreign policy that seems to be fraying at the seams. The question is, how long is he going to be able to do this? And certainly, if we get the disruption of a second Trump administration, uh, then we will see a U.S. that becomes very much consumed with itself, its own priorities and its own interests, both domestically and internationally, very much to the detriment of allies. And so I think you can see from allies, on the one hand, the Canadian response look, we're not going to get involved in internal U.S. sort of politics and sort of just waiting and hoping and seeing how it's going to shake out and hoping for the best to the European response. And notice, of course, in particular, the chiefs of the defense staff in Sweden, in Norway, in the U.K., in Germany, all saying there's going to be a war with, with Russia in the next six to eight years, and we better start preparing because they already understand and they're hedging their bets. If there is a second Trump administration, the United States is not going to be on the front line of that war. Christian Leprac with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, author of the new book, Security, Cooperation, Governance, the Canada-United States Open Border Paradox. Uh, as always, Christian, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a lovely afternoon. Take care. 
We've been talking a lot about car theft recently because it's become a crisis, so says the Insurance Bureau of Canada. And whoever else wants to weigh in on this, uh, 250 cars found in southern Italy uh, from Canada on their way to the Middle East. Uh, it, it just continues on and on and on. And it was interesting. I was talking to a guest last week. And, you know, many are saying, well, we should be doing this. We should be doing that. Why aren't we asking the question? And they steal cars in every country. But Canada has now become a hotbed. So why are we better at giving car thieves what we want, what they want than any other uh, jurisdiction? They sell lots of cars in the U.S., but still we seem to be more of a target. What are we lacking? We're literally buying the same cars. So is it necessarily an industry thing? Uh, let's bring in David Booth, senior writer, post media, or sorry, post media driving, driving.ca. And with us now, David, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well, actually. So, David, uh, I want to talk to you also about the license renewal thing, but we'll do that in a sec. First, why is Canada such a hotbed? I mean, for around the world, it's like if you want a car, this is the place to get it. It's coming out of Ontario or Quebec. Well, it was interesting you brought up the difference in the United States. It's not that they steal less or more cars than the United States. It's that only 8 to 10% of their stolen cars go overseas. Mm. Uh, with us, it's over 50%. It might be touching 60% of our stolen cars go overseas. And it's really, really only in Quebec, in Ontario. I think it was Ontario went up 55% in sales last year, uh, in stolen cars last year. And Quebec was 63%. The West is just 8% because they're not shipping cars overseas. And it's, um, it's, it's a real, you know, it's a, a pandemic. It's really bad. Uh, and the reason why is twofold. One, um, we're not punishing those that actually steal the cars. Uh, one statistic that really stood out in the, uh, in the summit that happened last week was that 45% of the people uh, arrested for stealing a car uh, are actually on bail for another offense of stealing a car. I mean, it's basically a revolving door. I mean, there was one uh, person near Brandon that stole a car, got arrested, got bailed out, and six hours later was arrested again for stealing a car. Are you surprised then, David, that the Prime Minister has given Ontario, like, I think, $121 million to deal with guns, gangs, and auto theft and is holding a summit when, you know, it's, <laughs> if you're soft on crime, it's what you get? Well, I mean, let's, uh, let's understand something. That was a complete political ploy. I mean, the biggest problem for the, for the Liberals, I suspect, is everybody at the summit, and it was a very large summit, took them very seriously. I suspect they wanted it just to be a photo op and a and a and a thing for the you know any any upcoming election uh, campaign. But pretty much everybody, I listened to the whole three and a half hour um, summit, and the people that participated, other than the liberal uh, uh, the liberal government, were very serious about holding everyone to account. So it's it's this may get out of. Uh, get out of you know their control in terms of a movement. But I'll put it to you better. If anything gets done, it'll be despite whatever the government does. It'll be because of all the uh, all the agencies and the police forces. So is this a turning point now? Do you think, David, with this summit, uh, do we learn anything from this? 
I guess it seems what we've, it seems what we've, it seems what we've learned, David, is just rather than how to solve it. I think what we've really learned out of the summit is just how bad it really is. Well, it is. And there's one other reason why our cars get stolen. Uh, I'm importing a car, so I, uh, a motorbike right now, so I know this. Uh, you, If you're import, uh, exporting a car out of the United States, for instance, okay, you have to supply them all the information, VIN, the vehicle identification number, all that kind of stuff, 72 hours before you show up at any border. Now, whether that's in a shipping container or you're just trailing it across the border at Niagara Falls, 72 hours before you go do it, their border access people have to have all the information on that vehicle Mm. or you can't even show up. In Canada, you could change the manifest 48 hours after, after the ship has left the port. Mm. (laughs) I mean, it's basically a license to steal cars. It just is a license to steal cars. And, 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 you know, the government could create all the summits and everything else they want. But until they actually do something like um, start being hard on the actual people that steal the cars before they change the rules about exporting and, and manifests and this kind of thing, they can hold all the summits they want. They can toss all the money they want at various initiatives. But it isn't going to change much. Hmm. It is so... I, I, I talked to one expert that told me that shipping three Honda CRVs overseas will net the same profit approximately on the wholesale level as importing a kilo of uh, cocaine. So, hmm. I mean, if you steal cars, you get a slap on the wrist. You import a kilo of cocaine and get caught. My yeah. You're going away for quite a while. So guess what they're doing? A lot of them are just saying, look, this is easy peasy, no risk, high reward. Let's do this instead of something more dangerous. It's as simple as that. It's not really a theft is- issue. It sounds more like uh, a detention issue. It sounds more like, a, a, you know, a, a prison issue, more of a, a law and order issue than it does necessarily car th- uh, thievery. It's just car theft is the is the big thing here. Let's talk about license plate renewals. We remember when uh, the Ontario government said, okay, you don't have to do this anymore. You, you can save the hundred and whatever bucks it was to get your license renewed. But then we lost the ability of people to, well, they didn't lose it. They just stopped doing it because you don't have to, uh, registering their plate. So now when questioned about that today, the premier said, ah, don't worry about it because we're going to automate it all anyway, which seems like a brilliant idea. No? Well, uh, okay. So one, the, the, the reason why, I mean, this seems a little bit knee-jerk because wasn't it just yesterday, I think, that it was the Toronto Star that said, there's a million cars that haven't yeah. received their plates, even though it's free. And then today, there's some knee-jerk reaction. I'm not sure how well thought out this is. I hope it's better thought out than I'm thinking because, okay, they've talked about how you'll have to pay your fines and your 407 fees and stuff like that before you'll be automatically renewed. You could, if you haven't paid yeah. your fines. Yeah, you're not, automatically, you're, you're, you're not automatically renewed if you've got outstanding tickets, yeah. Well, how are they going to check on insurance? Every time you register uh, and pay your, um, or, or even registered and, and before paid your renewal, you have to show proof of insurance. If I don't have to renew my, uh, my, my even renew it and, and, and send in a paper saying, here's my insurance policy number, how are they going to check that we're insured? 
is this going to lead to a whole bunch of people saying, okay, I don't have to renew. I won't bother paying my insurance and un- until I get caught and somebody asks for my insurance, I'm scot-free. I, 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 that hasn't been explained to me. I haven't read anything on it. Uh, I've looked on online uh, on the Ontario government um, uh, website, and I can't find anything about how they're going to um, regulate the fact that you must have insurance and prove you have insurance, even if you don't need to uh, send paperwork in to renew your license plate. I, I, that's be first and foremost in my mind as Wouldn't- to how this is going to work. Again, I'm going back to automation. Wouldn't that be easy to do? I mean, it, it, why would that be any more difficult than any other uh, transaction? I mean, you may get people who are driving and have registered, said, yeah, yeah, whatever, and then you, they get caught and they don't have it. Well, they'd still be charged. I'm, I'm not sure well, yeah, if we can do charged. all this if we can't do that, too. Well, when they're charged, yes, or when they're stopped. But yeah. like, So, for instance, when you had to auto, when you had to renew without paying, in the form, you had to say you had insurance yes, before absolutely. they would issue. Yeah. I say you now that is gone. I mean, there's going to be no, uh, at least as far as I understand it. Well, from what I understand, talk. David, from what I understand, David, it's the last time you signed up. That information is valid until it changes, and if it changes, it's up to the driver to change that information or uh, pay up their fines in order to, uh, you know, to get their uh, to get their license. So, you know, I, I don't see how that's any more difficult than any of the rest of this. If you it's it's renewed automatically. And if you've got outstanding insurance issues or outstanding uh, uh, tickets or charges, then you won't be automatically renewed. And theoretically, your license is is yeah, is pulled like it would be anyway. The government can't check on, on um, they relied on our information to, to do it. So uh, yeah. I, I understand. I'm talking about people who will take advantage of it. You and I aren't going to do it. We're going to pay an yeah. insurance. But there's lots of people out there that the only reason they paid for the insurance was to be able to register or re-register their car. Those people might say, hey, I don't need to do it. And, 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 and until I get caught, oh, well, oh, dear. You know what I'm saying? So I, 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 I'm not sure that there's anything like the insurance companies aren't going to provide the government with our insurance policies. They're not going to. So the I don't see that this I, I don't see this as being a problem that can't be solved, though, David. OK. David Booth with a senior writer, Post Media Driving, driving.ca. David, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. I will be. I will be. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Um, uh, Ratings are out for the Super Bowl. They're like apparently had historic highs. Is this the Taylor factor? Yes. Or was it that riveting a game? No. So I I was dozing off. Two things. Yes, it is the Taylor factor. And, you know, we, I don't know if, was it you? No, maybe it was Don Robertson I was talking to on my show last night. I can't remember. But um, we were chatting about the fact, you know, the NFL truly has the biggest horseshoes in the world. That the way this thing worked out, this is going to do nothing 
to discourage those people who believe that it's fixed and that the NFL made this happen <laughs> because they knew that Taylor Swift would bring in the viewers. This is going to dispel those myths not at all among those people who believe I can't that. believe you're even bringing that up. Like, is this like such a hairline fracture of the population that it's even worth, you know? Oh, you, you know what? Go, go. I don't know what population is represented by social media, but it is a widespread belief that the NFL, yeah, yeah, even, yeah. look, the NFL itself, made tongue-in-cheek video, uh, uh, commercials at the start of the year about the script, that uh, people believe the NFL has a script and that this is fixed. There, there are people, not everyone, there are people who believe this. The NFL well, the jokes unfortunate, about it. Well, the unfortunate thing, Scott, is we can't help those people. We can't, and I don't believe, and, and I'll tell you why I don't believe it, and not to be serious about this because it is a bit of a silly thing, but the NFL, for the billions and billions and billions of dollars that it's worth, if it was ever to be found out that the game was not legit, that the game was in fact rigged, I'm Where not talking. Where are you going no, no, with this? I'm not talking, I can't believe you're in saying this. I, no, no, I'm not talking about, about refs making bad calls. If they're ever in any sport, but especially the NFL, because it's the biggest right now in North America, if there was even any evidence that someone was trying to work an angle to make something happen, that's the end of the league's credibility. It's, it would be a bill. There's no way. So I'm just saying this for the people who actually think that Taylor Swift was, you know, part of the result of this thing. Taylor Swift helped draw Pete numbers. Rose, Pete Rose, Pete Rose, but look what Pete happened. Rose. I know, yeah, but exactly. look what happened. You, you, Pete Rose is where he is now, not in the hall of fame and still seen by many as a pariah and baseball got rid of him as fast as it could. Look at uh, the, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, basketball referee, uh, Tim Donahue, uh, from a few years ago, they got caught doing stuff. These leagues, there is no chance that they would allow, even for the Taylor Swift factor, there's no chance that they would let this happen to draw ratings, but she did. She absolutely helped to draw ratings. There were you know, we heard stories again, you look around, you, you hear about dads writing online saying my young daughter watched the Super Bowl with me for yeah. the first time this year. Yeah, now, it's, it broadened the audience. That's for sure. Now, did it really, bro it broadened the audience. Did it grow the audience? There's a difference because a lot of people probably <laughs> no, but a lot of people watched the game this year because here's Taylor how Swift you grow the audience, Scott, here's how you grow the audience. You somehow, somewhere have to find something in what we have learned over the last weekend and how do you do you evolve that how do you monetize that so in other words and i've got this written down as a question for you yes what does pro sport learn from this what can they take and say you know uh, maybe we don't need a taylor swift but it's clearly we clearly have an opportunity here to grow or expand our audience, even if it's only for a couple of times a year. What can we learn from this? I think that every league would love for one of their top players on their top team to be dating Taylor Swift. I'm not sure that she's open to that kind of thing. But, um, uh, no, but uh, my, question, your halftime show. my question about the growth though, as opposed to the exposure is, if t are the people, did the people who have otherwise never watched football, but were intrigued because Taylor Swift was there, are they ever going to tune into a game that Taylor Swift is not attending? That's probably where, not, but who can 
who cares? It's still growth. Whether well, it's, whether it's only if one person, it's still growth. Okay, and, it, and right. it's growth. It's growth. It's something that had stalled for a while. So again, it may only last one day. But how do you repeat it again on that one day? That's why we see the halftime show the way it is. That's why everybody talks about the commercials the way they do. It's more than just a football game. The, so the are we going to learn from though, that? But the flip side, though, Scott, is what happens if Taylor Swift and and Kelsey break up at some point? Do Who those cares? people, but do those people, <laughs> do they stay with the NFL because they're fans or are they loyal to Taylor Swift and they abandon it in droves? We don't know. It's not bad for the NFL to no. have had her there. It drew ratings. I, I have no doubt that it drove ratings. For sure it drove ratings in this one. There's a reason. I, I don't think that Kansas City, Kansas City is now the villain of the NFL. More people hate the Kansas City Chiefs than love the Kansas City Chiefs. Do more people hate the Kansas City Chiefs than the Taylor Swift? Uh, yes, I, I think people are, t- <laughs> well, it's the same way as the new, new England Patriots. People get tired of it and they're not the most likable group generally, unless you are a diehard fan of the team, but people tuned in. So, uh, but I wanted to say one other thing before you go, and I know you got to, when you said the most viewed television audience, the funny thing, a variety magazine had a line in today that said this was the highest number of people watching the same broadcast in the history of television. And I'm thinking to myself, really do the borders of television only extend to North America? Because I can tell you when India plays Pakistan in cricket, there's 15 times the number of people Mm. watching. When the World Cup final is on, there's probably 20 times the number of people watching. And they don't have Taylor Swift. There you go. They don't even need Taylor Swift. I don't know who they got, but they don't need Taylor Swift. They got Shakira. Uh, Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up next. And you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a good one, Scott. Hips don't lie, my friend. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. All right, everybody. Today is Shrove Tuesday. If you don't know what that is, it's Pancake Tuesday. If you're not a Christian or not a Catholic, that's okay. Still eat pancakes. Let's celebrate being Canadian and have some maple syrup. Have a great day, all.